we're back. You're back. We're back. Oh we're back God. backstage. We're That's back. Great. It's just been, it's been a time, you know, the beginning of the year in this industry is a lot because nobody works for six weeks at the end of the year, you know, but I wanted to introduce our guest today. Our guest is the one, the only, the infamous Peter Strickland. Woo! Infamous. That's a good, I mean, that takes a lot think, to get that one. Thank goodness it's only one. <laughs> I don't know if the so, world can deal with two of us. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the first day that I met Peter Strickland. So Peter Strickland is the founder of Marathon Talent Agency currently, but Peter Strickland is also known as the King of Nashville, in my opinion. Wow. Oh, you know, thank you. Thank you. You know, P Peter was here when I was in grade school doing things <laughs> making things work <laughs> working with Blake Shelton and his mullet but the first day that I got to meet Peter and work with him was the first day that I was working at Warner Brothers Records in Nashville and of course I'm kind of terrified this is my like this is my like official first day in the music industry type of deal you know like real job real whatever and so I had gotten hired to do digital as we do now which was called new media which I still find hilarious yeah, and that is, a, that is a funny term <laughs> and and um so you guys know like the recording industry doesn't only record music it records spoken word it records comedy there are other things anything you can record audio wise could be part of what we call the recording industry and people that make comedy albums and spoken words and books they can win Grammys. It's a thing. So Peter headed up this, this label under Warner called Jack Records, and they did comedians. Now, I knew nothing about comedy at the time, but Cassie was like, I got you a job working in a real record label. I was like, throw it at me. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> so I go to my first day of work. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And they say, well, you're going to go meet with Peter and you're going to have a call with this comedian he works with named Lisa Lampanelli. Oh no. I knew it was going to go here. <laughs> I said, oh great. Literally my first day. So I'm thinking like, you know, first of all, I'm thinking like I have to be professional because this is a professional world. So I sit in Peter's like office. He had a giant office. I remember he had a Tanya Tucker's old wardrobe. I'm hanging on the back of his door, just nonchalantly. And he calls Lisa, puts her on speakerphone. And he's like, Lisa, I've got Jade here. You know, she's going to run your MySpace page. And she says, what up, cunt? <laughs> and I probably That's said so something along... Brand. I probably said something along the lines of over that word. I don't use that <laughs> word. She does. <laughs> I was just like, oh, hi. <laughs> and that was the moment that I got shoved into the recording industry. And I've never, never changed since. But yeah, and Peter just laughed. And I didn't know if it was like something I should laugh at. Cause like in, in, in like regular, not professional world, I would say shit like that. But I just, I didn't know. And I was like, ah, I don't know what to do. <laughs> It freaked me out so bad, but uh, well, of course I was probably like, should I laugh or not laugh? What should I do here? You know, I because think you like, I think you like nervously laughed very loudly. And so then I just kind of like followed that. I was like, okay, okay. I got it. So like, this is how it works. Do I get to say cunt soon? Like, I don't know. I don't know where this is going, <laughs> you know, over the years I've been called cunt a lot, mainly by Lisa Lampanelli and Peter taught me the ropes. He taught me. From there, the recording industry, I believe when we were, on, we were on our way back, he showed me where the vending snack machine was and I was real excited about that. So that was my first day in the music business. And I said, 
here's a snicker bar girl something like that yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> here's a snicker bar you cut <laughs> Yeah, but, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if that would fly now. Like, I don't know no, if, like, I don't know. comedians can, like, talk. I mean, I guess comedians can get away with more in general. They have. Yeah, they can, in. but it's a little bit harder now because everyone's so, you know, PR, you know, like, they just don't want to say yeah. the thing. And it's, um, I think comedy's in a bad place at the moment because the comedians cannot, half the people will laugh and half of them won't they won't think it's yeah. whatever it is you know and it's 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 not how comedy um became what it is i mean you're, you're open game to me comedy has always been you go in the room for comedy you're a target you know you sit in the yeah. front row you're definitely a target you know yep and i wrote a comedy shows my worst like i will avoid it at all costs for the rest of my life yeah, it's so scary. <laughs> Don't want to do it. Ever. Cassie also avoids being front row at a Backstreet Boys show because she doesn't want to make eye contact with them. So, oh no, why would I? Like, that was my dream when I was a kid, but now that I know them, like, just no, I don't want that to happen to me. Yeah, I love it. I love I it. Don't, I don't like that. So, I don't like when you're in the like in the office and people come and play you a song for the first time. And I just, I don't know where to look when that happens. I agree. I hate that shit. <laughs> yeah. Does that make well, you feel weird, Peter, when people do that? Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm telling you, it's it's not, it's not like, it, at least if like it's a room of like 10 people, it's one thing. But when it's just like you or you and another person, you're like, <laughs> do I look at them? I don't know. <laughs> like, it's very How into it do I get? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I see something that I want to bring up and then we're going to get into your career, Peter, but Peter, I see if you look to your, I believe left, I see that infamous Janet Jackson Rolling Stone cover. So our friend who is AJ McLean's business partner, Mr. Renee Elizondo, he is the hands. Really? He's the hands. Yeah. Wow. He was married. He was married to her then. Oh, so he wow. Is yeah, I don't know Janet, but I know those hands. Well, I didn't know I, I didn't know he was married to her and that was what it was. It yeah, makes sense. I mean, yeah, I, was, a, I look um, at that and I'm like, well, who who was the one that had that job? You know? <laughs> yeah. Now I will say, I will say, AJ McLean told me that story. And sometimes his stories are like a tiny bit off. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give my uh my point of reference, but no, Renee and AJ are business partners and Renee actually produced like all of Janet's early videos. Yeah. So he is like an amazing uh video producer. So Oh, did he produce when I think of you? Great. I video. think so, yeah, yeah. Oh, and so so yeah, I, I mean seeing that there, I was like, I, I see like I see Renee's hands, I have to bring this up. But Peter, I wanna talk about when you I mean, the podcast is only so long and you've had yeah. a long career, but <laughs> when yeah. you came to Nashville, why'd you come? Did you have a dream? Like, cause here's the thing, like the moment you meet Peter Strickland, you think this man runs the world. And I can't honestly imagine you like being the kid with the dream because you're so like, your shit is so together. So like, when was that moment of like, I, I have a goal, I wanna do this, this thing. Well, it, it, it's really, um, and you're right, the, po the podcast is only so long. So, um, but back when I'm from Massachusetts, as you know, from Boston, and, you know, when I first got in the business, I was, you know, I was a DJ and I was an R&B fan. I loved R&B. And of course, that's why there's Janet in the background and, mm -hmm. um, and Prince and Rick James and Funkadelic, all those R&B bands from back then. 
And I just wanted to get into business. You know, I, I love music. I lived and breathed it. Every dollar I made, I spent on music, right? And and so I got in the distribution side of things. I was I worked at Strawberries Records and Tapes, which was a, a major record chain up in, in, in New England at the time. And that was my kind of entry point. And then I became the R&B buyer. So all the, you know, I would buy all the R&B records and, you know, here's, here's the white boy buying R&B, which was really kind of funny. And I'd go into, um, into uh, you know, the R&B stores and sell them the R&B records, you know, and I'm the white guy. It was just, it was kind of a dynamic that was so, just so great, you know, it worked. And um, so eventually I got plucked from WIA Distribution because they were the ones coming to me, selling me everything, and they wanted me to be part of their team. So within a short period of time, it was probably four years, I went from being what they called a singles specialist, which is not a dating firm. It's kind of a... Uh... <laughs> a single is a... And here's the thing. I feel like now people do know the term single, but also like, I think like the young people who listen to this probably don't realize that like back in the day, like, you know, TLC Waterfalls came out. I went to the record store and bought a cassette tape with one song and maybe a B-side and that was a single... Yes, that was a single, and that, that and the cassette to me was the worst configuration known in the industry. But that's my personal opinion. And when they came out, we're well, gonna put one song on a cassette. That's so dumb. It's so dumb. It is kind of annoying. It's yeah. really but annoying. It, it worked for about three years, you know. Yeah, one time I was switching my cassette singles in my Jetta, and I hit a fucking possum. What? Did that's you go back and get it? No, I can. Oh. I still, I still vividly see its eyes looking at me as I hit it. It's like a nightmare. It's like Pet Cemetery, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, oh, so God. you know, through the ranks, I I made it into um, you know becoming the sales manager for the Boston area, and part of the responsibility was promoting country music in the New England area, which was a task at the time. You know. Uh, yeah. 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 Because who listened to Randy Travis in in uh, you know Massachusetts, I did actually, but um, so okay. I love, love, love Randy Travis so much. Like is, love Randy Travis, an amazing person, and of course his voice um, is undeniable, right? So amazing. So that was the pivotal point. So I just springboard all those years to the pivotal point where I'm in the pick, pack, and ship business, right? I'm in distribution. I'm like, this really is not my game. I want to be part of the creative process. So how do I do that? I got to get at a label somehow. And then this sales position became available at Warner Brothers in Nashville. And I just, I said, oh, that sounds like something I could do. And, you know, I, I, you know, I know how to sell. I can sell a dirty toothbrush to a dentist, you know, so I can, you know, I can yeah. sell country music then for sure, you know? So, um, I applied for the job. I got it. it. There really wasn't even an interview. They knew they knew all about me because of my connections and doing that stuff up in New England. And from that point of moving to Nashville, my goal was to to learn everything I could learn about the record company and what their role was in developing an artist. Because that's what I love to see is like, okay, here's someone from the beginning. And now they're this big star. And how do they get there? What's the process? And I I felt like I was a sponge for like four years. I would be out selling records to Target, Best Buy, you know, Walmart. But I'd always pay attention what was going on in the process. And 
And to me, that's that's what really drove my career is trying to learn everything about it. Every, you know, what new media did, <laughs> you know, what, you know, what, you know, marketing did, what radio did, what PR did and all the roles and seeing the artists come in from the, for the first time and what they look like and what they leave the door looking like and, and how that, you know, how different labels in town actually manage that process because some allowed the process to happen naturally and some guided the process some dictated the process you know so it, it was very various ways to look at it and thankfully warner has always been the artist friendly label and they 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 would work with the artist and hear their vision and help them guide the vision versus telling them the vision and you know, this is what you need to look like because everyone across the street looks like that, you know? So, uh, well, that's what country radio sees, you know? So it's, uh, if I had not, and this is not, um, you know, taking a torch, you know, and, and pounding the sand with on Warner, but it was, I, I couldn't have been at a better label because if it happened somewhere else, maybe my career might not have been the same because mm. I might not have liked, liked what they were doing, you know, on on the uh on another label and dictating you know what what they would call the cookie cutting you know mm -hmm. you know process so yeah and um, i mean that's something you know obviously we still deal with all the time and it's like when i actually get an artist it's like well what do you think it's it's like oh okay you know it, it's interesting because you have some artists that come in and the label or the manager are dictating and sometimes artists go here's here's all my thoughts. Can you help me put this together? And I love that. I loved like taking, like, I feel like I'm a sponge for all of their ideas and all of their vision and their words and their messages and helping to put that out in front of the public in a way that is digestible. Yeah. And it's so fun. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of what drove me to, to what I um, ultimately uh, where I started my career in, at, in, in Nashville. Um, you know, I, I uh, distinctly remember this uh, to this day and going into my first marketing meeting and uh, you know, I, I'd go in there and I say the word marketing and they would, they all make fun of me because you know <laughs> the way I said it. And I said, look, we came down here and kicked your ass once. We're happy to do it again. You know? So, <laughs> so it was, I love it. I love it. Oh, well, do you remember? Um, I wasn't there, but I've heard this story so many times. Do you recall a marketing meeting with, I believe it was Big and Rich, where Cassie walked in and her foot caught the cord of the conference phone and flung it across the room? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and, then it, and then it didn't work after. And I was mortified because that was like one of my first big meetings I ever went to. And I was really No, it wasn't the worst thing that happened in a marketing meeting. So you're okay. That was <laughs> No, I know it is now, but at that time I thought it was like the worst thing that could happen. But well, there, yeah. there's a lot worse things now in hindsight that could happen besides breaking the phone. Honestly, I would be glad now somebody broke my conference phone yeah. at a marketing meeting because it sucks when you have to call in and listen to 30 people in a room. So I did yeah. whoever was on the other side of that a favor because they didn't have to call in that day. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I'm hoping someone trips and smashes my Zoom camera soon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, yesterday I, uh, my charger was broken. So all day I was like, I can't, I'm working from my phone. <laughs> it was great. It was great. You know, and that's kind of, you know, the, um, I was going to say that there's nothing better than having uh, that, person-to-person -person conversation, right? And yeah. in person, you know, it's just, 
you can, I think everyone feeds off of each other. And, you know, I keep hearing these stories about, you know, COVID, there's going to be no more offices and people that work in offices. I'm like, well, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to see what the long-term effects of that might be. But to me, it, society and people kind of work off of each other. And I hope that, you know, we don't go down that path of not getting together. You know, I, I've done some meetings outside my uh, home office now, and it's just so so great to see people and talk to people yeah. and you know feed off of emotions and you know so i can't wait i can't yeah. wait like it's because yeah. definitely like that's something that's important to me and that's where i feel like i thrive so yeah it's been and great you I do. Do. and you thank do you. thrive off of it thank you <laughs> i i do enjoy not putting on real pants while doing things like this but uh, true that you know. true that yeah you know gotcha. so peter i wanted to start the name dropping process now for people oh. What are some of the the people you have been around as they have come up through the ranks in music you have made into superstars? Let's go. Let's talk about it. Um, Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Okay. So I heard this story a long time ago and I've never known if it was like true or not. And it may have been on like, I don't know, a CMT documentary or something, but it said that when Faith Hill first came to Nashville, she worked in the mail room at Warner, but didn't tell anybody she was a singer. Do you know of that? were you there then and is that true um i i don't think it's true um mm. what i know of faith and how she was discovered she she worked as reba mcintyre's receptionist ah and you know just started you know uh building her career as an artist and then eventually uh someone along the way told her you got to go out and do this thing yourself um i came in um in 95 faith came into the building in 93 i think mm. and then the first record was 94 so um i sold all the records i promoted all the records uh as a sales guy and as a marketing guy later on uh which was really kind of the she was part of my transition going from sales to marketing right because all, i was always just responsible for just going and selling them all and then eventually mm. i became her marketing guy you know yeah. and, it's like holy shit now i'm a marketing guy you know it's yes! like, it's great yeah there's a ring you know i used to that then her first career album, tanked no i'm kidding <laughs> i still love her man but when i was like i guess i was in high, like high school or middle school like i didn't have money to buy cds because first of all cds were like 25 dollars, which i feel like now is the equivalent of like 40 dollars. Yeah. and so i didn't have 25 dollars to buy a cd when i was a teenager so when that album came out i would go to the library and they had it because it was like clean you know and yeah. i remember i like i kept renewing it so many times they were like you can only do it like six times you have to bring the cd back at some point <laughs> at what point I did you what at what point did you rip it um i i mean the thing is back then in that time, in 93, you couldn't- Oh, no 93, 93, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, like the first years. album. Like, the thing is, I don't think I knew how to like do something like that until like early 2000s or yeah. like 2004, I don't know. So yeah. yeah, there was really no way to like, I mean, and then there was a stage of getting like a boom box with a CD player and a tape player and you could mm -hmm. like record it. There was that stage, which I yeah. did sometimes, but yeah, 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 I loved that album so much. Yeah, that was it was a great record and and uh, how she evolved over the next decade was pretty pretty amazing to see. You know? Superstar. Yeah, yeah. Superstar. So what was the original question now? How did we get to Faith Hill? How, oh, the, the, gonna, story, the story yeah, about- Yeah, I just asked was, about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. let's talk about some of the artists. Cause here's the thing, when I bring up an artist, you always have a story and they're always amazing and I love them. So like, 
<laughs> like we'll just Cassie pick an artist that Peter has worked on. Um, Blake Shelton. There we go. So, so Blake, um, the digital revolution was in full motion at the time and labels started collapsing in Nashville. I think there were close to over 30 labels in town. And then all of a sudden they all like folded. It, it was, it felt like it was overnight. Um, mm. And so, what year was this approximately? Oh shoot. This had to be 2000. When was Blake's first album? 2001, maybe? 2002? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Around then. And, you know, I was at Warner. Uh, Faith was still, uh, he, she, she, she was on the label far after that, but there were a few artists that were on the, we were struggling as well. And, and then all of a sudden this happens. And then the Warner Music or WIA labels started to fold in, in Nashville. So you had Warner Brothers, you had Atlantic Records, you had Giant Records, you had Electra Records, you had Asylum Records. All those labels closed like overnight. And next thing you know, we had to choose what artists would come mm -hmm. over to Warner because they were all coming into the Warner fold. And Blake um, uh, was on Giant and so wasn't Joe Nichols actually on Giant. Um, and we took over Blake and said no to Joe. Um, and I wasn't involved in that process. I was still doing sales at the time. And then uh, Blake had already released through Giant, um, Austin. And it was in the top 45. I think it was the number 43 when he came over to the, to the label. And no one wanted to be his marketing guy. And at the same time, people were being uh, let go at Warner Brothers, you know, because they were reducing staff. And I, I survived that one um, as well as many others, but <laughs> that one for sure. And, um, and I just said, look, I know marketing. I, I do retail marketing and it's the same kind of thought process. I'll be his marketing guy. If, if no, then no one has the time or no one wants to do it, I'll be the marketing guy. So I took on Blake and we, we hit it off really, really well. And like anyone, he just appreciates people that just are straightforward with you, you know? And, and I'm that type of guy, I'm completely transparent. And I just tell it the, the way I, you know, the way it is. And, and, and it's up to you to make a decision from there. But so, you know, I started working with him and of course he, he had the hair going on and it went on and, for and a while. And to clarify, clarify in case some of these, cause here's the thing you gotta realize like, our audience are kind of like, you know, young kids that want to work in the music industry. I yeah. don't know if they don't know the voice Blake, like you guys, when mm -hmm. Blake Shelton around this time, he had a pristine mullet. And I don't mean a cool hipster mullet. I mean a bad mullet. <laughs> yes. Like that's the hair. Country mullet. A country mullet. mullet. Yeah. Yes. yes. Backwoods mullet. Backwoods mullet. Yeah. I, I always refrain from calling it a mullet, I, the hair. I just call it the hair. Mm. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. I gotta, I gotta call it what it is. You gotta call it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, there's funny stories with the hair because, um, you know, just like a kid, the more you tell somebody what to do, they don't want to do it. Right. So, yeah. and, and that's how it was. I mean, and he was adamant about it and, and I went into a marketing meeting at the time. I'm like, look, he's going to cut that hair when he thinks the time is right to cut his hair. It's our job to tell him the pluses and minuses of it. Yep. And ultimately, 
it's his decision. It's not ours. Yep. And kids, kids that ask, what do you do every day at your job? We go to meetings and talk about the pluses and minuses of mullets. Oh, mullets. <laughs> but just, I think that's a good point though. Like, I think that a lot of times people are like, oh, that marketing person is awful. They, I can't believe they let somebody do this. And I'm like, we're not dictators. We don't get to decide what people do and don't do. We give suggestions and feedback and data and, and advice, but we can't make somebody cut off their mullet. Like right. that's, that's illegal. You can't do that. Yeah. Well, and some do though, as you know, Cassie, I mean, it, I stay out of that, but a lot, I just think that a lot of it's a preconceived notion that like people yeah. like use a really heavy hand and make this stuff happen. Yeah. And it, it's, you don't have to do that. It's our job to advise, but not to force in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. And actually when he, you know, the, the plus and the minus was national TV, it does not have artists on TV that look that way. And we'll do our best to try and make that happen. But, you know, it's going to be extremely difficult. And, you know, when he cut it, all of a sudden, boom. No, he when was... he cut it, because first of all, I... okay, let's talk about this. First of all, <laughs> I was an early adopter of the Blake Shelton crush, which was not a thing that, the mainstream public, or even, I don't think he was some sort of like sex symbol in like underground country. Like it wasn't a thing, but he would come in the office and you know, he would flirt and flirt and say shit and make jokes. And I was like, Cassie, I have such a crush on Blake Shelton. And she's like, what? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I remember one time, cause Kelly Cashiola, now um, Haywood used to, like she was over at like that st the Starstruck studio with him recording something and she made him prank call me and he calls my office phone and goes, hey, hey, I love you. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was so in love with him. So anyways, so then he cuts the mullet. And so Cassie on her computer pulls up this, I don't know what the single was, but it was like the first photo. It was like the photo without the mullet. And I was like, oh shit. I told you, <laughs> like I saw it coming. And then Cassie went in there and she went to the creative. And I remember Cassie, and I don't even know if you know this, Peter, but I'm sure, I'm sure you do. But Cassie was talking to, I guess the creative department and, or the art department. And um, she said, you got to edit this photo, like this Justin Timberlake photo. So she pulls out this photo of Justin, like holding like the broken mirror ball. And it's like, you got to put shadows here and do this. And, and they did. And then the photo was like hot and, it was the moment. Well, what happened was it was it was for MySpace at first, and then everyone liked how his MySpace page looked because it was mm -hmm. edited oh, right, and then it became okay, a single cover. Yeah, because ah. it was cropped a certain way for like when you had the like the MySpace header space. So yeah. we, we did that, and then yeah. it looked really good, and it became like it moved into like being general art for for that uh, song. Yeah, but Peter, so so then I went and worked on Nashville Star where yep. he was a judge. And then like, I'm sure assuming like you booked him for that gig. Well, it was, that was a, uh, that was a management role, um, mm. you know, but we would obviously, everyone talks to each other in the building about yeah. you know, what the right moves are with him. Yeah. Uh, with any artist. Right. And, yeah. and, um, um, and then of course the voice hit and that was like, you yeah. know, the, really kind of put him in another stratosphere. Although, you know, all this, he was going through this, you know, with, with the imaging changes and then the music uh, really transitioning to a Scott Hendricks produ production, which is 
obviously a mm -hmm. big part of his career too. Mm -hmm. um, we decided to, you know, go into a greatest hits record and everyone was, you know, talking about the pluses and minuses of a greatest hits. A greatest mm -hmm. hits usually signifies your career's over. I'm like, no, it doesn't. D George Strait has put out how many greatest hits records? <laughs> It's like true. Look, look at it. Look at it as yep. a transitional period in your career, yes. right? Yes. And it was. It really put an a, an end to because mm. we had put out those two six packs, if you remember, mm -hmm. which was a big debate in town. And then we said, okay, let's do the greatest hits. Put everything from this point on in the in the vault, and then let's move forward. And then that's the voice happened to happen at the same time, and it's like holy shit! Now you know it's. It yeah, just blew up and it, it just blew up everything. You know, you 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 want you know. I love to sit here and say it was all my grandioso idea, but it <laughs> it's not. It's it's really um, it's it's a, a lot of people really thinking it through and taking risks. Of course, you know the six pack was very risky at the time, um, and I just remember battling a battling about the six pack and saying no this is not an ep it's an album it's an album it's an album you know? and, people uh, love to dictate what an album what an ep like they love to dictate that verbiage yeah. so yeah. funny so so it's great so but it, you know we're, and we're still you know friends to this day and and you know i love the guy to death and he's one of the true real people that i met along the way in my career that yeah an artist that the really the the stardom has not um, affected his ability to, you know, communicate with anyone. Uh, you know, he would stop and talk to anyone. You know, going into a store or whatever. You know, yeah. he's just that kind of guy. So so nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Moving on, I want to talk about what you're doing now. Um, well, um, when um, I separated from Warner, and it was. Um, 17 i think ironically um i well i spent 29 years in the warner music family you know i i uh, which like can we stop and talk about that because i'm telling you like i mean you know we've owned crowd surf now for 14 years and as time goes on we see younger people staying less and less time in jobs because they think and like you can see like research that's been done on this they think your job is to jump around to get all the experience I feel like I come from more of the school of like my parents and like you and like oh no you stay in something and you like you work on it and you make it work and it's just it's such a different world now with like somebody hearing that somebody stayed somewhere for 29 years from when they started Hannah does that terrify you yes <laughs> <laughs> a little yeah <laughs> See, and like for me that doesn't terrify me at all like if i don't get to stay at krauser for like 30 40 years like i failed you know not fail but you know what i'm saying like like that doesn't scare me if i was at krauser for the rest of my life doing the things we're doing but like you know moving and growing and doing bigger things as you go so it's interesting yeah i i guess i can speak to that a, a bit because to me i it, money was never a motivator to me Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people jump around, whether it's for experience or money. And mm -hmm. in the early days when I was going through the system, it was about the money. And, and I was told, well, I could have moved to L.A. a couple of times. I could have moved to New York a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And and I didn't. I That's not what was motivating me. What was motivating me was learning the business and going going to work every day with the people that I 
I don't want to reset and start talking to a bunch of new people I don't even know, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I have these relationships with people that I build along the way. A lot of people have come and gone in that 20 years, 29 years. And that was enough for me. That was enough to, all right, well, I got a constant revolving door of people coming in. And, mm-hmm. and I always felt like now, what can I give them that I learned along the way? Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I was yeah. always that person. And, um, you know, especially interns, I would always keep my door open and say, Hey, you want 15 minutes with me to to ask me whatever you want? I'll be happy to do that. Because I think that's the best satisfaction, you know, in someone's career is how many people that you can give, you know, your knowledge to and advice to and pass Mm -hmm. it off and they can thrive from it. But it was a, a good you know, 15, 20 years, which I never even looked at my paycheck. I really didn't even, I, yeah. I never did. And that was not what, well, um, you know, I will say like, you know, Cassie and I, two things, we were only at Warner for two or three years, um, really because we were trying to move up, but digital wasn't moving as fast in Nashville. Yeah. And so us branching out and doing more things in digital outside of Warner for us, the time made sense. Otherwise, I think if like we could have moved within Warner, we could possibly maybe still be there or something like that. Um, the other thing I just want to say, thank you, because you were that person to us and you taught us so much. Like there are things that I do now that are a result of things you taught me and how to present myself, how to treat the people around me, how to work with artists. And it had such an impact on myself and Cassie's careers in general. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, you you're welcome. I that I just you know I don't uh, I just care that I that that I can do that and not really look for the thank you, but I appreciate it. You know. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, so before we go on to that other the question you were just asking, I gotta yes. say because I'm like, um, you know, the title of the podcast really made me think about you know how many times I've been backstage and. Mm-hmm. and how I got there and all this stuff. But how many illegal things have you done while backstage or uh, helped cover up? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I, I really had a good PR person. Well, <laughs> but that that's a key to a lot of things, by the way, a good PR person. But uh, my, my first experience backstage was um, Tina Turner. Right? What? Yeah. During uh, the private dancer tour. And I, I was I was working at Strawberries at the time, and you know the Capitol rep said to me, "Tina Turner is coming to the Providence Civic Center. You want to go?" I'm like, "Of course, yes, you know? <laughs> yeah." And he says, "I'll get you some backstage passes. Oh, you get to meet her, right?" And I'm like, "Perfect." So I, I, my wife and I go to see the show. It's great, you know, and everything. We go back to meet her, and we everyone's doing pictures. And this is where you know you, the PR person's not really that great. I get back, I get my picture back, and I, we're we're sitting next to a, a urinal. Right? <laughs> backstage, and there's a urinal in the background. I'm like, really? My first backstage photo. So I had it cropped up, and you know, it looks, yeah. it looks a lot yeah. better now. But I think, hold on, I might have. <laughs> hold on, I'm going to show you the photo. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, the urinal is no longer in it. But oh, okay. Well, let's. Oh my. Look at that. Is that a mullet? Is that a mullet? Who has the better hair in that photo? I mean, it's it's a tough call. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it is That's Tina amazing. Turner, but like, if I did teased, you ever? If I tease it up a little, we'd be really. Oh. Oh, you had a teasing comb? That's that's like some Boston. That's like, because see, it also reminds me of like 
Donnie Wahlberg at that time, who I was in love with, you know? But yeah, <laughs> so I'm so glad you also cut your hair. Yeah. Also, you always have the most stylish clothing and glasses. It's fucking ridiculous. Really? Um, okay. Oh, it. yeah. Well, wow. I mean, it's just, it's never, it's just black. Like, that's, that's it. Yeah. Like, you can have some bad clothing. People can yeah. have bad clothing. Lots right. of people do. Frames are my thing. I love, uh, because oh, I'm so tall, I, I you know, uh, fashion, they don't make fashionable clothes for people mm -hmm. at a 6'5", really, unless you mm -hmm. pay for it uh, dearly. Yeah. So, um, shoes and clothes, uh, shoes and uh, frames are my thing. So, if I'm going to be and, fashionable. Yeah. yeah. 100%. I have, a, I have a pair of gold Puma sneakers Ooh. that I'll wear at the Grammys when one of my mm -hmm. artists are nominated for the Grammys. I, I love a good suit with some tennis shoes. Yeah. If they're if they're like good enough. Yes. That see, but that is like music industry couture. <laughs> so, so I remember the question. If you want me to come back to that. Yeah, I want you to talk about what you're doing now. Yeah. Cause look, so, now because like look, you you worked for the man for 29 years. Yeah. Now you are the man. Yeah. How's how is that? It, it's actually, uh, it was very scary, as you you, you know, probably going yeah. your own business, right? And I was leaving a corporate job that was paying, you know, a, a decent amount of money for sure, and some security to that, right? And what what I I felt as my career had grown, it, it, it went further and further away from the reason I got in mm. it from the beginning, which was developing and helping artists image and, you know, marketing the artist right from their early stages and making them what they want to become and i i felt like i was managing employees more than i was doing that mm -hmm. you know blake was always yep. you know my the, i was his marketing guy until the day i walked out the door and and he was the only one i was doing at the time is marketing mm -hmm. you know yeah and so i started uh, marathon talent agency and i didn't i didn't know i was going to be in management i thought that I might go to management or I might go with a label that's starting back up again to help grow the label um, and the artists on the roster. I, I didn't know. So um, I, when I left Warner, I just went to Hawaii for six weeks and just laid on the beach, smoked cigars and drank a lot of Mai Tais. And then where, what Island did you go to? I went to Maui. Okay. And you, yeah. you like, um, you like Kapalua and Lahaina, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's my but, spot too. Yeah. I, I do love, um, uh, Kauai as well, the Northern, Northern part of Kauai. And then, so, so uh, you went to Hawaii, you did the thing, you came yeah, back. Yeah. So I came back and, and then, um, yeah. And then I decided, you know, I, I should entertain this, uh, management idea because mm -hmm. it really is kind of the same process as being a, you know, brand manager or marketing mm -hmm. director, when you think about it, those roles at a label are the same as a manager outside the label. You're just an inside mm -hmm. manager, right? 100%. Versus an outside manager. So uh, that's when I decided to start building the company. And, you know, at, at, at uh, the first one was Mark McKay, which I'm still working with to this day. Um, he came to me through a friend that I knew in LA and he just said, Hey, you got to you got to listen to this guy. He's, he's great. And, um, I listened to his music and, and, and I just went in my first meeting with him. I just said, look, your, your songs aren't good. And I, you know, I, I'd love to come see you live because I hear you're a great live performer, but 
let's let's just do that and see if we can work together from there and i went to see him and his show was great he was his uh live show was really really great and i just said look i'm not going to tell you how to you know i don't want you to change your career but to me the one thing lacking is your songs and and that is the most important part of it you know and 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 it that was evident because socials were not strong no retainment he'd do a show no one would follow that kind of stuff you know the things you look for to see if there's some something happening you know and he said okay let's do that so and we did and um he's he's been now he's moved to nashville since writing songs and all that but Anyways, uh, he was the first signing, and then I signed this guy, Chris Mann. He um, he he was Phantom of the Opera guy in New York for uh, oh. a couple of years, and then uh, then he started. He's kind of like uh, a lot of his music was kind of on the Michael Bublé kind of side, you know. It was um, really I thought really great stuff, and so I started working with him. Signed a number of artists along the way, and and uh, right now. Um, Coming out of COVID, things have gotten really, really busy. I've since signed a new comedian, Byron Kennedy. Byron was a VP of promotion over at BMG. What? And, That's awesome. Yes. And a, a lot of people kept telling him, dude, you're so damn funny. You've got to go chase your dream of being a comedian, right? And um, John Loba over at BMG reached out because of knowing my comedy career, not yeah. my stand-up career, but my comedy business <laughs> career, uh, said, you know, I, I, I want to connect you with Byron and, and, um, and Neil Spielberg as well. And, um, and I took a look. I'm like, damn, you, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. So it, it's been great. And um, he's, he's now starting to get out and do some stand-up. He's, but he's really skip the number of years of the the you know the open mic night stuff because he's been i guess working at it for a while i guess if you go into radio stations yeah. and start promoting it but um he was also a radio personality like 10 years ago and howard stern told him uh he was you know on the air said he was only like one of the funniest guys he met so it's like all the stuff that was giving him the clue to go be a comedian so yeah so I've stepped back. I put my toe back in the comedy. So amazing! Uh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Amazing. So, maybe maybe soon his head will be painted on zanies over here. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Except you for somebody eat some fried food and watch him. Well, but do you know at Christmas somebody ran into zanies? A big hole in the wall. Oh, I heard about that. I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't see it, but I heard about it. Like a box <laughs> truck took out the side of zany. <laughs> We're going to do a show here in Nashville and I'll invite you guys out to see him, but when yes. things are opened up, but he's really, really funny. And, um, and then, um, you know, so it's been, it's been very um, refreshing and um, the reward will be soon, hopefully, you know, as we get out of COVID and some of these artists can, you know, get back on the road, you know, cause I've signed Carter winter mm -hmm. um, this guy, Liam Coleman, which he's a 17 year old kid out of Massachusetts. Everyone kept calling me from Massachusetts. You got to look at this guy. You look, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I went to go see him and he was great. So I'm like, Amazing. Come on, I'll help you out. So, and then the recently, um, uh, Pres Presley and Taylor, they had a world premiere on CMT yesterday. So it was really great. And so it's, you know, it's, it's been really great to be back in the whole creative process and helping artists. Uh, I, you know, and I can't help myself when it comes to that, you know, 
Um, even people that are not signed to Marathon, I, you know, I've had so many coffee meetings, you know, just to help yeah. you know, give advice and everything. Eventually, I'm like, all right, no more free coffee. No more free coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it anymore. <laughs> do not pick my brain for free anymore. It hurts my brain. Cassie, I remember that from you. Yeah, it's it is. It's like it's, I don't know. I don't like when people talk like uh Rihanna's song, like Love on the Brain. I don't like people talking about the like the brain. Like I, I see it like in a jar and I just don't find it attractive and I don't like when people sing the word brain and I don't like when people ask me if they can touch mine. I don't like like the organ and the visual of it. It's yeah. not okay, my so thing. I like that with your visual of brain is seeing in a jar because when I hear somebody talk about brain, I think about like in fourth grade where they told us how they took the brain out of the nose of the Egyptians when they were making them into mummies or mummifying them. <laughs> and that's what I think. <laughs> that's really that's like COVID swab test to a whole new level. Oh, yes. you're right. I didn't think about that. Yeah, now also, I want no, no, I'm not going to go get a coffee because I feel like I'm just taking a COVID test. Pick <laughs> <laughs> <Take> my brain. <laughs> my brain. <laughs> no, don't touch my brain. Don't, <laughs> don't touch it. Uh, All right, so I'm going to end this with Peter. Yeah. Being someone who has been through the music industry for a full career, like you could totally retire if you wanted to. What is your number one advice to someone that is just like at Belmont thinking, I want to go do this? What is your number one piece of advice? Hannah's listening. She's at MTSU. Yeah, to me, I would I would say be patient. Uh, don't let money drive your ambition. Um, you, you know, the best thing to, for me has always been waking up in the morning and wanting to go to work. Right. And I can't imagine how many people in this world wake up in the morning and say, oh, shit, I got to go to work again. And, you know, I think the entertainment industry leads itself and gives you the opportunity to be able to say that you want to go to work. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a business that uh, will drain you. Um, it will you'll work. There's no such thing as 40 hours a week, you know. But uh, if you have the patience and drive and passion to see, you know, artists really develop and become stars and not be jealous or envy it because as in them, there's, you know, this, there are certainly people in the industry that feel like they're just as big as the artist. Um, then, you know, stay in it. That, that would be my advice. I mean, I think I thrive because I loved what I did and I didn't let money dictate what path I was going to take. And I just absorbed as much as learned as much as I could um, on the street level. This, the things that you had seen, uh, Lisa Lampanelli wasn't taught in college, right? No. <laughs> it's it just, you got to be able to pivot and, and, and mm -hmm. change quickly, you know, and that's what makes the industry that we all live in, work in, uh, exciting. You know, I don't, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to wear to go to work. <laughs> one but you day. still look good. You, you, you got it. You got the style. Well, I agree. I mean, honestly, I feel like you're preaching the same things that I say. Cause again, like uh, you get these young kids and they just think like, Oh, I got it. I'm going to make it real quick, you know? And then they give up because it is a long road. It's a very long road, but it's very 
rewarding to be able to do something you love and yeah. to be able to see those um, those rewards in the yeah. end. So well, we started we started this whole thing talking about Lisa Lampanelli. Mm, so we should right. end. Should we end? We should end with uh, at least comedy, right? Yeah, uh, we should end. Um, yeah. I, all the things I want to say about Lisa Lampanelli, I feel like I can't say on here because <laughs> like. They're all quotes she said, and there's things I can't say and get away with. So She's crazy. So the second record, right? There's somebody in the organization that had to listen to the record and transcribe everything she said and put it in print, right? For the <laughs> lyrics. For the lyrics, right? Well, it's, right. it's not really lyrics because it's comedy. It's, I guess, a spoken it's a word book, whatever it is. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I get a call. I can't remember. It might have been Bill... But may I can't remember who who called me and they might have been HR. Then like, well, um, we're, we we we're having an issue here because someone is completely offended by Lisa Lampanelli's uh, album. I'm like, well, give it to someone else to listen to. <laughs> what are you gonna do? I mean, what are you gonna do? It's freedom of speech, right? It's like, <laughs> what are you gonna do? It is. There's like a weird line in the industry, like for instance. I was working at the bank and my coworker took off all their clothes and changed in front of me. I think that would be weird. When a backstreet boy does it, I think nothing of it. Right. Exactly. You know, situations, right? You know, it's yeah. Like, it's just funny how an artist like just will walk in any room and like change in front change of everyone. Yeah. They're just yeah. so used to it. Yeah, right one day, AJ was changing in my office in LA and I have like a glass wall, and the whole staff is like, what is happening? Right now? I'm just like, uh, sure, yeah, we can we can make that happen. Okay. And he's like in his underwear. And everyone's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, you know. I, hey, I wanted to thank you guys for having me on. I appreciate the invite. This was great. <laughs> thank you. you. This was great. I'm so get glad. Get out of the cave, you know. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Peter, do you want people to follow follow you on social media or no? Yes. I have my Marathon Talent Agency site. Okay, so uh, go there. And socials. And then mm -hmm. Peter Strickland uh, as well um, on on socials well thank you so much you guys follow peter on instagram at pb strickland follow myself at folia jade and cassie at cassie petrie this episode was edited by hannah humphreys and produced by crowdsurf with original music from cody falcosta <laughs>